0: Last week we got through the D as in Delta section, this week we're going to do the E as in Echo section, and we're going to start with eBook Tools because that's the first one in the in the list. So eBook Tools gives you a couple of tools, couple of tools to help you deal with EPUB. It, it, what's the official pitch? The official pitch of the package is that it... Um, tools for accessing and converting various ebook file formats. That may well be, but um, really what I use it for is e-info. That's the command that it provides. There are three header files, epub.h, epub underscore shared.h, epub underscore version.h. And I imagine you could do a lot of things with those header files. There's also a, a library, libepub.so. So I'm sure that would help a programmer use these you know, like definitions of EPUB and construct EPUBs. Honestly, I have been, well, when I first started making EPUBs, I just made it myself. Like, it's not actually that hard, which is a beautiful thing about EPUB. Uh, You remember in the previous episode, possibly, I was talking about DJVU, DJVU, uh, and how kind of not easy it was to make compared to, say, a comic book archive where you just dump a bunch of pictures in a folder and say that's that's an archive now. Um I mean literally you just zip it up and call it a .cbz and it become it is a comic book archive then. Really really nice. Um, I mean the the images that you dump into a folder need to be uh, sequential. Uh, you, you know you have to give them uh, s- s- numbers so that the, the by default they're they're sorted correctly, but other than that I mean that's that's the creation process. DJVU a little bit difficult. EPUB is not terribly difficult. I mean, I say that because it's it sort of fits into my workflow anyway. Uh, I try to maintain a workflow based around DocBook in some way. And lately that has involved a lot of ASCII Doc, because ASCII Doc is essentially like a... Common Mark, or better known as Markdown, a Common Mark kind of lightweight, you know, light markup language or Markdown language uh, for th- that compiles down to or transpiles, I guess, over to DocBook. And then DocBook, you can do anything with because it's a very, very verbose, very explicit language so you got docbook and then you can go out to anything you can put it out to an epub uh, you can just uh, go out to html and then literally making an epub uh, like by hand if you want to is it's just taking a bunch of e, uh, HTML files placing them in a directory putting a I think two different files of metadata are are like sort of required you can go you can go further but I mean really you only need two files of metadata and one is I mean is, it's quite tr- a trivial amount I, I don't exactly remember all, all the all the things that you need to put in the file but it, it is not a lot and then uh, you zip it up and you call it nepub now you have to you have to declare the mime type in the in an uncompressed section of that zip file that you've just created. So it's two different zip commands. It's one zip command to create a zip with zero compression, and then another zip command, ideally, to create the rest of the book that is compressed. So that's a little bit, I don't know, not not counterintuitive, but like unintuitive. It's a secret that you have to know. And I've covered this before. I, I should probably have a link somewhere on on how to do that. But I mean, realistically, you don't you don't need to. I'm just saying, EPubs are not difficult to make. That they're a little bit more complex than a comic book archive, but not that ha- much harder. I mean, and it's just, it's HTML on the inside. So if you can if you can create a website, then you can create an EPub easier, to be honest. Because really, EPub ideally would be a lot less formatted than in, uh, than most websites. So really basic HTML markup. A couple of fancy tricks with ZIP, and um, I think m- there might be some really rudimentary XML in there, but it is not hard. So this th- this EPUB this ebook tools thing I'm sure is very useful if you want to do all of that from the programmatic side, like if you're programming something in C to create EPUBs or to uh, look at them and, and you know parse them and spit them out so that they look nice, this is probably very useful. For for people who are not doing that, the little, I guess it's probably a demo application or something, it's called eInfo. And uh, it's, it's just, it gives you all the metadata about the book, a book, an EPUB file. So here's eInfo, and then I'm going to do um, a path to an EPUB that I literally just bought this morning, actually, on Humble Bundle, because there's a Java uh, programming Humble Bundle. And so here's... Um, einfo info to javachallenges.epub, and it gives me about a screen full of information. So it gives me the file name like where it exists on the system. That's just like confirmation of what you're looking at. And then the root um, sort of definition of what you're looking at, oebps slash package dot opf. That's application slash oebps dash package plus XML. Title, Java Challenges 100 plus Proven Tasks That Will Prepare You for Anything Creators. Michael Inden, Identifiers, you are in colon i s b n colon nine seven eight dash one dash four eight four two dash seven three nine five dash one and so on it also gives you the reading order so it's not file names but it's like it it tells you like if you open this up these are the 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 chapters and sections you are going to journey through in this order. Uh, and predictably, it's like, you know, front matter, chapter one, part one, chapter two, chapter three, four, five, six, seven, part two, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, and so on. So um, it, it's pretty predictable. It's, it's all just sort of, you know, sensible. But it, it you know, it, it depends on how people name their files uh, as to whether it's actually that obvious. And then there's other stuff too, like the cover. Well, that's in html/cover.xhtml table of contents that's in uh, a different uh file body matter that's over here in this different file and so on so um yeah it's really useful kind of just it's information about the book it's it's metadata it's data about the data and the thing about that is that you know you can get this information by opening the epub but what if you don't want to open the epub and i will i will say that a lot of EPUB um, openers, a lot of EPUB readers, they seem to, and I don't know why this is, but they, a lot of them seem to assume that you want to create like a a standing library for the, f- you know, like I don't know how many PDF readers, none in my experience, but I I'm sure there's a there's a version of this, but I mean, how many PDF readers assume that you that you only want to open a a book out of your PDF library. Like, you know, a a library of books, not a coding library. But like, you know, usually it's just like, throw me a file, I'll show it to you. But EPUB readers, a lot of them just seem to want to insist that you have a stash of ebooks, of EPUBs, which I mean, I do, but I, I don't always... I, I like to download EPubs and then look at them, and then maybe I'll add it to my my my, my little ebook library. Maybe I won't. Maybe I want to file it away somewhere else. Maybe I don't care about it. Maybe I just want to get rid of it. It it I I don't like that a lot of EPub readers seem to just insist that it's the uh, Elisa or Amarok of of ebooks. If you take my meaning, you know, it's like oh you you must have a stash of all of these books, and I I must show you a gallery of the covers and so on. Sometimes that's just not the case. So e-info gets around that really easily. Although, now that I'm on the subject, there's a great Firefox extension called EPUB Reader that um, is really great. It, it You can just open up an EPUB right there in Firefox, which feels pretty natural because it's HTML. And there's a tool, a hidden toolbar at the top and a hidden toolbar at the bottom. That's the only, I would say, unintuitive thing. Um, and it's it's really easy. You just open it up. It doesn't, it doesn't have any kind of concept of, let me show you all of your book covers so that you you can choose which book you want to open. It's just, you throw it a file, it opens it and shows it to you. It's very nice. So I, I do recommend that one um, if you are looking for a quick e, e, EPUB reader. But if if you're just looking for an easy way to just check out a, a EPUB file that you're not really sure what it is, eInfo is great. Now, if that metadata doesn't exist in the EPUB, eInfo fails miserably. Or it doesn't fail, but I mean, it, it will not give you the information that you'd hoped for. But that's not really its fault. That's the ebook publisher's fault. And it's easy to, like I say, I mean, EPUBs are easy to make. Uh, so it is easy to make an EPUB without all the right metadata. It really is. Um, just like it's easy to make any kind of file without the right metadata. It's like that extra step, which, I mean, admittedly is kind of bothersome and painful sometimes, but uh, that's just the burden of digital content, I guess. Next package in the list is editor-config, and this is a really, this is a great project. editorconfig.org is the homepage. Uh, Well, I guess we should first, really quick, look at what's in the actual package itself. Editor-config dash core. So this contains uh, the editor config command itself, and then a bunch of cmake files, uh, looks like two different header files, and uh, there it is, a library file. I can't for the life of me understand what the editor config command actually does if I do a which on... well, if I do a which for editor config it's in user bin okay so if i do a file on that it tells me that it is a oh darn it that's a symbolic link to okay there we go to an elf binary called editor config if you do sort of a dash dash help for a, a editor config then you get four options the two of them are throwaway uh, actually three of them are throwaways one is dash f uh, which requires the uh, conf file name other than dot uh, you know something dot editor config. So in other words, it, it's asking you for a, a a an alternate configuration file other than dot editor config. Uh, that's that's fine, except what does it do? Like the command doesn't do anything that I can tell. So if I do editor config uh, tilde slash ramdisk slash fake, it just Nothing happens. It returns nothing. Now, is fake a valid editor config file? Well, yes, it is. I happen to have made a valid editor config file. We'll get to what that, what, what editor config files do in a moment. But um, how about if I just do something completely fake? Like so, that doesn't exist, non-existent. Uh, it's fine too. It returns zero. So it it will take fake file names just as happily as it will take true uh, existent file names. I could also just put a string of letters and then it gives me an error. It says, input file must be a full path name. So as long as it's a path name, whether or not it exists, doesn't care, it's gonna return zero. If it's not a path name, then it returns one. Is that is that the feature? Is that what this is for? I really don't know. So um, maybe the point is that I point it at fake and then give it a version number because that's the dash B specified version used by devs to test compatibility okay it doesn't really tell me what the version is but i'm assuming it's saying that the version number of of a, of a of another editor config release so let's just go with 0.1 so dash b as in beta 0.1 and that returns the name of the f- the file the path name and then the option dash b and then input file must be a path name so it's it's interpreting my version number as a a, as an input file which it isn't uh and so yeah i don't know the the command doesn't seem to function in any sensible way so i don't know what that does editor config itself though is a project that is intended to create a a specification for IDEs. I shouldn't say specification, a preference, preferences for an IDE. So let's say, let's say that you're programming in Python with a bunch of other people. Classic problem with Python is that uh, some people use tabs and other people use spaces, and Python does not know, it, it knows the difference too well. If you have indented with spaces and then someone goes into your code and indents with a tab that breaks python that confuses a lot of people because you go into python you look everything's indented correctly what's the problem there's some number of invisible white space over here and there's the same amount of white space over here so how is that a broken issue well if you know what to look for or rather, if you know that the problem exists, you may you may poke around and discover eventually that oh those these are all spaces that one's a tab. That's why Python sees this as some kind of broken um, indentation. So that's really annoying, and it's, it's not something that necessarily everyone has immediate control over because if your editor is swapping out has it programmed to 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 look at four spaces and swap it out for a tab automatically that's a convenience function of some editors and the reverse is also true for some editors hitting tab gives you four spaces rather than the same width of four spaces a single width of four space so that can be really problematic and um the and that's just one example i mean there's lots of other examples probably less maybe drastic but but variation can be a problem it can be problematic and i think one thing that I have, I have discovered as, as I have worked with people and computers, or actually, you know what, just people and algorithms, because this happens in, in the little hobbyist game design stuff I do as well. I think as a programmer or a provider of a service, very frequently your, your tendency is to highlight how, how robust and flexible your, the thing that you're doing is is and you tell people you tell your users you can do this or or you can do that it doesn't care it's the my my algorithm is smart enough to handle either one it's a point of pride and it should be i mean that's that's great design if you've designed something that scales up scales down um normalizes spaces versus tabs like that's really cool but what i've discovered is that you don't need to give humans permission to deviate from a standard if you find your yourself writing in a program, in in documentation for a program or a game or whatever. If you find yourself writing telling your reader that here's how you think they should do it, but if there's some other way that they can do it, that's fine. Don't ever do that. Just uh, people know that if they can find another avenue to the same result, then they'll take it. And the moment you give them permission to do it, you are inviting variation. Now, you may think that your algorithm can withstand variation, and it might be able to, but that's the thing about variation, right? Like, you don't know. There could be something that someone tries that breaks your algorithm, because you're inviting that in. You're saying, figure it out. You'll, You'll find a way to make it do this, and that's fine. My algorithm's really smart. Well, great, but what about an algorithm based on your algorithm? So, for instance, in an editor or, or in programming rather you, you you think you know what my my algorithm's really smart i'm just looking for equal sign doesn't matter how how far things are indented whether there's a space around the equal sign or not it's super flexible i'm just looking for this one character and then i'm going to f- i'm going to take the left and the right values and that'll be the key and the the, the key and the value pair on a, a line delimited it's really easy not a problem this is super basic stuff and so you champion that you think that's you're super flexible you don't care as long as it's lined and delimited and um uh, what's it called, um, separated by, well I guess delimited also, by equal sign, then, then you can parse this config file, or, or whatever. And then, someone is using this concept, your, your concept, and thinking, well, what I really, all, all I really want are the keys. That's all I want. I, i I never need the values, I just want to see what this, these users are using as keys, so that I can do a thing, and it'll do a different things. you know, so, fine. Well, that person thinks i will I, I this will be super easy and i'll just use i'll 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 look for the the start of the the word start of a start of a line all the way up to the first equal sign and that that'll be the key i know this always well what that person didn't know is that you is that you've not written a specification and, and, and as long as the line has an equal sign it's fine so some people are indenting things some people are are not indenting things some people are putting i don't know equal signs in their keys i whatever right like all there's mayhem people are doing whatever they want because you said they could and now people trying to parse the thing that you've sort of kind of defined are all of a sudden having to do five times the work to account for all the different variations that are possible because you're you you didn't specify what you need precisely enough. And in it I know it, it feels oppressive almost, right? Like my gosh, like why would you define something for people? Why why would you force them into one thing? Like surely giving flexibility and accounting for it is better than than being narrow and and rigidly defined. And I I think in computing and and in a lot of things where you're trying to create, again, an algorithm, a sequence of, of behavior and results, I think, no, I actually, like, if you want predictability, the specification is important. So all of this to say, editor config provides a standard, a specification for how somebody, some developer, some user within your system says, this is how I'm going to do things. I don't care what editor you're using. I don't care what kind of special macros you have enabled. I don't care what you feel like doing. If you want to conform to the thing that I've started, then here are the rules you need to follow. And better yet, here are the rules that your IDE, that your text editor can use to help you conform. So you have things like, it's a simple file, it's I and I, so it is, it is a, a square bracket to apply to certain things. So for instance, square bracket, asterisk, square bracket would apply to everything in a document. End underscore of underscore line equals LF. That's a unix style new line character at the end of every line. and a final if insert underscore final underscore newline equals true would insert a final new line at the end of every file, which is a f- relatively common uh, requirement like YAML actually ooh, I think it is it an error or is it just a warning if you don't put a, a an empty like an empty space at the end and I think there what is it nginx? Is it the nginx config file or something like that once in a new line i could be wrong about that anyway um yeah, I think I'm wrong about that. But there's there's something else that I do on a server frequently that's always telling me, hey, you don't have a final new line. Um, and then you could do like a square bracket asterisk dot curly brace js comma py curly brace square bracket. So now you're saying anything that ends in js or py car set equals utf-8. dash So now you're using utf-8 dash characters. Uh, character notation with anything that ends in JS and and Python and so on. You you can do that down to uh, file extensions. You can do it to exact file names. And I mean, there's there's a list of like you know valid functions and stuff. You can't just obviously just make stuff up. Like I didn't I didn't just make up uh, what was it end uh, underscore of underscore line. That's part of the specification of editor config itself. So th- that's where those come from. You can't just say, oh, I would really like um, people to use, I don't know, a dash instead of an underscore in, um, or an underscore instead of a, uh, an underscore instead of camel case in variable names. And, you know, you can't just make something up and just say variable name use underscore equals true. Like that won't work. You ha- There has to be a function for that. And there may well be, I don't know. I haven't looked at the whole specification of the, the Of the file format, but um, that's the that that's the configuration file, and you would then distribute that to all of your developers, all the people that uh, are working on your project, or if it's uh, just something online, you might include this with your source code so people get it, and then ideally people can. Use a editor that uh, conforms, or that that um, that uses itself editor config, and that's kind of the trick. Um, so a bunch of them d- do it anyway, like um, builder, Gnome Builder, or I don't know if it's called Gnome Builder, but Builder. It, it's it's associated with Gnome, and I think I want to say Flatpaks or maybe Podman, something something containery. I think um, that that uses it. Gitie uses it. G i t e a uses it uh, gitlab uses it so the gitlab i guess the in browser um, in browser uh, editor i guess I, i'm not sure k text editor uses it so that's that's close to home here uh gogs IntelliJ, um PyCharm, Kakune, that's a uh, modern kind of re-implementation sort of of Vim, or or I guess you could say inspired by Vim. Uh yeah, lots of different ones just kind of have it. Now, I will say, the the actual the IDE, the one IDE I I guess I use really more than anything else is NetBean NetBeans. Um and and NetBeans does not use it. Although, there's a plugin, apparently, for it. So I, I need to start doing that, I guess. Uh, I need to download the, the plugin and start using that. So there's Atom, which is now uh, dead. So what's it called? Um, proton? No. Um, Pulsar. Pulsar Editor is the new Atom Editor. So th- that has a plugin, ab- apparently. Uh, Eclipse has a plugin. Emacs apparently has a... Plugin Genie does Gedit, Jedit, NetBeans, Note, Notepad++, that's not really for uh, Linux, but I, I know it's a very popular one. Um, Vim has a plugin, of course, and yeah, there are there are a bunch of them that that use that, that can use the editor config uh, system. So if you're if you're working with a bunch of people and you want to kind of encourage certain guidelines and, and requirements of a file, which is a great idea to do, then editor-config-core, or, or editor-config is what you want to look into. Editor-config-core is the package on Slackware. I feel like I've gone on too long about (laughs) things that aren't packages about Slackware. I've, I've, I've waxed and waned, or, or whatever. Um, so eigen three. Is that how you say it? E-I-G-E-N, it's the math thing. eigen3 uh, is a C++ template library for linear algebra. That's like stuff like matrices, vectors, numerical solvers, and related algorithms. I don't know anything about math. I don't know about algebra. I know the word linear um, from video editing, uh, or rather non-linear, so I guess linear would be the reverse of that. So that's, that's eigen. Um, and yeah, you should go check that out if you're into the maths. I am not. I'm really not very good at maths. I'm still trying to catch up on that. So uh, I'm going to skip over that because I don't know what I would even do with it in C++. If, if I if I were to write a demo application, it would be horrible. Horribly basic, because that's where my math is. Elf utils. Elf utils is a collection of utilities, including stack to show stack traces, and m to show symbols from object files. We've used some of these, I think. Uh, Size for listing the section sizes of an object or archive file. Strip for discarding symbols. Read elf. Yeah, we've used all of these things in our talks about GCC. I mean, they're not very useful for building applications, but they're great for looking into an application, an ELF binary th- that obviously has been built by GCC, and maybe you need more information, or you want more information, something like EU, you, all of these commands are prefaced by EU dash, because they're part of ELF utils and not, you know, something else. And, and some of them are similar to some other edition of the tool, so, or or iteration of the same tool. So, or I don't know if it's iteration, a different version of a tool that does essentially the same thing. So, for instance, EU dash ob obj dump, object dump, eu-objdump space dash dash disassemble. That displays the assembly code of uh, the, the the binary, the, the ELF executable that you're looking at. So, uh, for instance, let's do uh, eu-objdump dash dash disassemble dash, uh, slash user slash bin slash editor config dash zero dot one, two, dot five, let's see what we get from that, a whole bunch of output, so this is, uh, this, this looks about, it's, I don't know, 200 lines of code, maybe, or, or outputs, rather, uh, so it's got the, the assembly codes, or, or, um, I don't know what they're called, instructions, that's what I'm looking for, uh, and, and it's, it's vaguely meaningful if you understand assembly, which I, I don't, I mean, I, I, I kind of I know some of it, like push and move, XOR, moval, things like that, but um, I don't really understand it. I just know that numbers are being shuffled around through through memory, addresses and registries, and things like that. So that's that's one example. One not very useful. Well, I mean, it is useful if you know, you know, if you, if that's the kind of information you want, then that is useful. And there's quite a lot of, uh, quite a lot of code, uh, or rather quite a lot of commands here. Why isn't this working? Head dash in, there we go. Um, yeah, so there's, uh, for instance, eu dash adder to line, and that will take you, well, it'll look through the, the symbols and try to find the line number from where that symbol originates, I, I believe it is, uh, eu-ar, that's an archiver, uh, e, 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 eu-elf-classify, elf-compare, elf-compress, elf-lint, and so, uh, and, and, and eu-nm, that's a useful one. Uh, I mean I know that we've used that one. Oh, did I already mention that? I did mention that. Um, uh, dash strings dash strip and so on. So tools to help you sort of analyze and possibly optimize in some cases like strip. uh, An an elf binary. Now Slackware generally strips binaries anyway. So like eu dash well we wouldn't want to strip yet or yeah we wouldn't want to strip but we could do for instance eu dash nm user bin editor config uh, dash 0.12.5 and it, it returns there are no symbols no symbols available here but i could download some some source code i could compile it and then before stripping it i could do it dash nm and i would get all the all the sim, a list of the symbols and once you have a list of the you could also do like well i mean i wonder if we could do strings let's do strings on editor config uh strings plural eu-strings dash strings. yeah couple of couple of strings there's dash dash version dash dash help unable to allocate memory failed to read standard in couple of strings there um not not useful to me um but oh no there's a whole there's a whole other there's quite a lot of strings actually i just missed half of them uh, a couple of function names or something like that but again that doesn't tell me anything about what editor config is supposed to do so i guess in other words this isn't this isn't isn't something that's going to help you i don't think like understand an application on the sort of how is it built level it's going to it's going to help you understand i mean i guess technically it's all, you know, reverse engineering, I guess. But yeah, it, it's more for analyzing a, a binary that you've built and, and and looking and seeing, you know, what's what's going on with it. Like, if it's erroring erroring out, like why? What? Where? Where might you know? What symbols are are there? What symbols are missing? What symbols maybe aren't aren't listed in in a place where they're supposed to be. Um, Symbols being reference points to a type of data, like a, a global variable. So if if something's crashing and, and you suspect that uh, it didn't get the data that it was supposed to get, then then looking at the symbols might tell you, oh, that there's a global variable that I thought I set at the top of my uh, program that all functions should have access to, but it's not here anywhere. It's not listed in the... Uh, dyn sym table uh it's in the s or or, yeah it's it's in the it's in the sym tab or or it's it's in one and not the other you know so you you could you could i guess come up with some some theories on what's going wrong that way but um it's definitely a forensics type of of tool set really useful stuff i feel like we've we've used it before on this uh on this podcast most of them so i think That's probably enough said about that. We should go get coffee! Who doesn't love a good cup of coffee i mean i sure do and i am sitting here with coffee looking through mastodon posts that i have forgotten to mention uh actually there's only one uh well i mean there's probably more but but the one that i've that that i remember that i forgot to mention is from hacker defo he says uh regarding episode 516 plasma vault offers a nice gui uh, and kde Integration for CryFS, good to know, didn't know that. Siri Kali, that's S-I-R-I-K-A-L-I is another CryFS GUI that is cross-platform and desktop environment agnostic. That is... Um, I'll, I'll just have to insert a link in the show notes to that. It's on uh, a very long string, uh, a name, a name, I believe, uh, .github.io slash sirikali. S-I-R-I-K-A-L-I. I'm sure a search engine could get you there too. Um, I did take a look at that. That was really cool. Both of the above support other encryption methods besides CryFS. If someone is looking for something even easier, than Cryptomator is another solid choice. Cryptomator is free to use on Windows, Mac OS, and Linux, but not on iOS or Android. Cryptomator.org. So both of those, um, if I recall correctly, were open source. Um, I don't remember there being one that wasn't. So yes, I'm gonna go on record and saying both of them are absolutely GPL3. I'm pretty sure that's correct, actually. Uh, and, and yeah, they're, they're kind of, they look kind of interesting, actually. Uh, I mean, CryoFS, I was, I was really impressed with just sort of the fact that it exists in, in the previous episode. Yeah, GPL3. Uh, the fact that it uh, exists was kind of cool. I just I hadn't heard of it. And just the concept of lock up your stuff yourself and then put that on someone else's cloud. That way they probably can't get into it. There's a probably in there, obviously. I mean, you're still putting your stuff up on someone else's computer and and given it enough time and... and um, determination, you never know what's possible when you just have something sitting around someone else's place. But I would say probably could not get into that. I, I would feel pretty good about it myself. So, um yeah, it's a really neat little um, application, but but there are front ends, and Hacker defo's given us three. Plasma Vault, which I, I guess I must have. I mean, I didn't actually check. Plasma Vault. I don't know if I have that. I'm not sure if that's in my my edition of KDE, to be honest. I'm going to system settings, and I don't know why I'm going there. I think because other, other application, other OSs have, and maybe possibly GNOME, has their vault in system settings. I, I could be making that up. Uh, I don't see anything called Plasma Vault. So anyway, that exists, apparently, taking it on HackerDefo's Defo's word. Uh, Plasma Vault, I mean, Probably didn't just make it up. PlasmaVault um, exists, and you could use that for KDE and cryfs. Siri Cali, I, I took a look at that one. I thought that was really neat. And then Cryptomator looks really cool. I just I didn't get around to trying it. But yeah, those are three really cool little projects built up around quick and easy local encryption that you could then distribute everywhere because you alone have the key. To that vault that's everything for listener feedback I think so let's continue through the ease as an echo enchant is next enchant I think must be I mean it's from the Abbey word project from what I can tell and it is it's a wrapper for spell checker utilities so it uses or it can use, I guess, a-spell, i-spell, hun-spell, u-spell, and h-spell. And I I know that it's from AbbeyWord because the repository, the git repository, is abbeyword.github.io slash enchant. And it is, yeah, it's a library and command program that wraps a number of different spelling libraries and programs with a consistent interface. The command line I could not really get to work. I mean, I could I could get it to respond, but I couldn't get it to actually do what I would expect a spell checker to do. So, to try it out yourself, it would be enchant-first. Uh, do enchant-listmod-2, that's L-S-M-O-D, like list mode, I guess. L-S-M-O-D-2, the, the number two. Do that, and it, it tells you what you have installed on your system. I have Hunspell and A Spell, apparently. I thought I had I Spell as well, but apparently not A Spell. Hunspell and A Spell, and uh, knowing that is just, it just confirms that, yes, you have dictionaries. Great. So now, in theory, Enchant 2 should do something. So I'll create a quick uh, file here called My Bad Spell, and I'll do Hello Walder, comma, I am a. Um, Haker CK, uh, kc instead of C K and uh, Geck two two Ks instead of two E's. So lots of misspellings in that in that sentence. And then I'll do an enchant dash to my bad spell, and it doesn't. It it tells me that I need to define a dictionary uh, and then the file. So okay. I thought it would sort of recognize the dictionary on its own, so apparently not. So I'll just do enchant dash two dash d for dictionary, and then slash user slash lib64 slash aspell slash british dot alias. I'm not British, but I live in a British country, or well, it's not British country. It's a country that has a history with British spelling. Uh, space my bad spell dot txt. Nothing. It just gives me um, more more output. Now there is a useful. I mean, like it gives me the help menu. Maybe I could just give it just the name of the dictionary. No, still nothing. Okay. So, uh, there is an interesting option though, that I do like dash, uh, lowercase L that lists only the misspellings. Um, oh, and it tells me, okay, it gives me an error this time. Couldn't create a dictionary for F slash user Libsictiva. That's not what I said. Oh, it is. Okay. There we go, maybe that was... No. Couldn't create a dictionary for slash users lib64 aspell british dot alias. Okay, well, dash p says give the u- the given personal word list. I I don't have one, but could that be maybe where it would go for a personal dictionary? No, it, it is not. So yeah, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to be doing with enchant that I'm not doing, but it 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 will not give me sort of like output that makes sense. Um... Yeah, there doesn't seem to be a way to get it. Okay, well now there's a way to do something at least, but that's not what I wanted to do. Enchant dash two dash lowercase l to list only the misspellings, and then my bad spell dot That lists on a line each word walder, which should be world, haker, which should be hacker, and geck, which should be geek. So it recognized that those are the wrong spellings, but unfortunately, um it doesn't tell me how how to fix them. Now there is a dash. I think it's uh what is it dash something option. I guess I have to look at the help file again. Uh which I could only see whether I wanted to or not before. Uh now I'm looking for it. Okay, dash a list suggestions in ispell pipe format mode. Yeah, that's what I thought. Okay. So dash a so it should be giving me suggestions from a spell from what I understand or i spell but or a spell rather um but it's not so yeah I'm not sure I guess I, I my best guess is that enchant dash two is a sort of a example library on how you would call the enchant library were you to be creating a command line tool. Because that does not do it for me. That that is not correcting spelling. Not the way that, for instance, just calling, a spell my bad text uh, d- does, or a spell dash c for check uh, does. Uh, that steps you through, you know, that interface that, as I said a couple of episodes ago, is exactly the the uh, reverse order of of how emacs does it it's like a for accept i for ignore and and i for insert versus a for something else so um so yeah that's that's weird i don't know what the problem there is but again i'm assuming it's just because that terminal command itself not not really designed to be useful i i hope that's it because it is it is not useful uh next in the list is e sound the enlightened sound daemon demon e sound with a capital d at the end the enlightened sound demon is a server process that mixes several audio streams for playback by a single audio device for example if you're listening to music on a cd and you receive a sound related event from your chat application it's it's actually icq uh, in this in this text so that gives you a a clue as to when if the cd didn't clue you in icq gives you an idea of when this was written the two applications won't have to jockey for the use of your sound card this is kind of what i was talking about last time when i was talking about whatever i was talking about it must not been last time it must have been the time before either way there was a time on linux when yeah when (laughs) when two different things were trying to claim the the use of a sound card the sound card essentially had to choose between which one it was going to let you hear and that's a horrible user experience this for the record was not well I, I, I say it wasn't during my time technically it was there were there were instances where that would happen but it was a, a r- relatively specialized thing like i would be running jack and and then something else so yeah it was a little bit different but um esound was an early implementation of this concept of like well let's let's provide a little um a, a a a green room, a buffer area, for these sound signals to come in. We'll mix them together into one stream and send that stream to the sound card. Thinking of it as, like, a, a, a quick, a quick, like, chime sound and maybe a file that you're listening to on the internet, like a, you know, a one-minute file, a 30-second file, that seems manageable to me. But the concept of, like, a CD streaming constantly for, like, an hour and then a chime happening at some unpredictable moment, the ability to mix that together and send it to a sound card at the speed of sound, that's just amazing to me. That that That's the kind of thing where computing just... It's magical, you know? It's so cool. And of course it's Enlightenment that would have d- done an early implementation of this. I mean, the Enlightenment desktop, if you've never used it, is w- it's worth a look. It might not be worth, look, uh, like, using long-term. I-, I have had stability issues with it. But it is... It is really nice and, and some of the ideas that Enlightenment has had over the years that then crop up in just mainstream Linux. It's just so cool. It really is. It's really neat. Okay, um next up is um eSpeak NG. ESpeak NG is a text to speech application, and I'm gonna admit it is not my favorite thing in the world. I mean, it's a fun thing if you think, oh gee, it might be fun to hear some, like, cool retro computer speech. Like this. This is cool retro computer speech delivered by eSpeakNG. But, I mean, you have to admit, that that isn't what I would call maybe, I don't know, user-friendly. I mean, you're lucky if you understood what that said. And and maybe you did, but it, it is difficult, I, I think. I think it's difficult to understand that. It speaks, it, it's clipped, it's relatively fast, and and it's quite harsh. And, and and it's 2023 so I, I just feel like computers should sound a little bit more human uh, maybe something like this this is cool modern computer speech delivered by Skoki. now that was the um cookie uh, tts cookie no cookie dash ai tts whatever the cookie dash ai uh project and the command in the the python library is tts the voice that you just heard was the jenny model uh that's kind of a cool project you should check it out go to github.com slash cookie dash a i c o q u i dash a i slash TTS all capital TTS is all capitals everything else is lowercase um, you can use you, you can install it with uh, Python 3 -m pip install TTS that grabs a bunch of Python libraries puts it into your home directory and then you're you're kind of ready to go you'll see documentation on how to like program Python with it in in the readme file but you can also just try it on the in a terminal and for instance, you might do something like TTS space dash dash list underscore model. That gives you a big long list of all the different voices, the voice models and the, the 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 sound profiles that were trained on lots and lots of text and so on. But the 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 nicest one I've found is the one that you just heard, Jenny. TTS underscore models slash E N slash Jenny slash Jenny jenny is j-e-n-n-y so you put uh so tts dash dash model underscore name quote tts underscore model slash en slash jenny slash jenny close quote dash dash text and then the text that you want tts to speak this is cool modern computer speech delivered by tts cookie dash dash out underscore path cookie dot wave for instance that would produce a wave file with the text that you just quoted. Now you could do a cool little Python script to read a, a file you know line by line or, or however you want to do it and and put that out to a wave file. You could create a Python application to interact with you much in the same way that e eSpeak might. Um, all in all, I have found all speech text-to-speech on all computers, on all Linux computers, um, clunky. And I don't mean that the text-to-speech is clunky necessarily, not now with Cookie AI, for instance, but the the integration seems clunky to me. And I don't know if it's just something, and this could very well just be me not understanding where everything is supposed to, to go, and then how to access it, but... To me, it, it seems like there's a big learning curve. And I'm not saying that, that that's unreasonable. Learning curves are reasonable. Like, if you don't know how to do something, and you want to learn how to do something, there's a learning curve there. Even if it's just a straight line from point A to point B, you have to learn it. So that's not unreasonable. I'm i am just saying I haven't yet figured it out myself, really. Uh, I mean, I couldn't, I could not, if you custom ordered, I don't know why you would custom order anything from me but if you did and you said hey i need a laptop that'll that'll talk to me i wouldn't i wouldn't really know how to do that i mean i, I could drum up something uh, specifically that works if you stay in emacs because there's a module for emacs to speak out like things through the festival voice synthesizer using eSpeak as the driver and it just it's it's clunky. It's clunky, and it's awkward, and it doesn't feel like it's really a thing yet. And I would love for it to be a thing. And and I think Cookie dot it's dash AI TTS is the way. I mean, that sounds amazing. Um, and it's all open source. So I don't know that that would be the thing to integrate if if I had to choose. Um. Then again I think there are different voices available for other other speech synthesizers too and so yeah I'm not sure uh all I know is that it it seems to be a big a big sort of place full of potential and and I I, I you know there's part of me that wants to really dive into it and then there's part of me that obviously doesn't want to because I haven't yet so I mean there must be something about that is not is not Compelling me to dive right in, but I don't know. It it is something to think about. It is it is an exciting, developing thing. I mean, you heard the difference between eSpeak and Coqui, so I mean, there's there's growth there. It's exciting. It's very, 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 very cool and and full of potential. But it is something that you're going to have to look into. Exiv2, exiv 2 This is a tool that I I don't actually use myself all that often. Um, Let's go to Unsplash really quick and grab an image. I will just literally take this one here because it's on the front page. Grab that, download it to RAM disk, and then I'm going to do exiv2 on this, uh what did I just download? I don't know. Uh, T-O-M. Okay. So exif2 on T-O-M JPEG. File name is a big long string. The file size is a number of bytes. The mime type is image JPEG. And the image size is 1920 by 2880. And interestingly, none of that is exif data. That's all just auto-detected properties of the image file. So if you want to do some exif data, it's actually, I don't know, I find it difficult in exif2. I don't use exif2, I use exif tool. The What I'm saying is exiv, E-X-I-V as in Victor, 2, versus exif, E-X-I-F as in Foxtrot, tool, all one string. Exif tool doesn't ship with Slackware. It's available in slackbuilds.org, though, and I just, I find it much, much easier to use. Exiv 2, though, is what I'm talking about, and so exiv 2, the one command I could get to actually work, is exiv 2, space, dash, capital M, quote, set. Space exif with a capital E dot photo with a capital P dot user comment U and C both capital there and then space I don't know car set equals ASCII new exif comment close quote and then the path to the image that works and if I do exiv to space image name example dot JPEG let's say uh, then now I've got exif data so there's the the standard exif stuff camera make camera model image timestamp none of those are populated of course because they're 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 just the they're just exif data that that I haven't given it. The one that is populated is exif uh, comment. Now, confusingly, notice the, the 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 property within the namespace exif. The property that that was modified that we modified in that command was exif dot photo dot user comment. But when you list the tags, and this is this kills me, when you when you list the 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 data, the metadata, you get things like exif comment. So if you're trying to reverse engineer from the output, what might, what what you might change that comment to or how, how you could comment change that comment you you would think well exif to dash capital m for modify presumably quote set exif dot comment probably right and then a comment and i don't know why the example is car set equals ascii new exif to com- what, a, what a horrible example that is uh, a comment would be something like uh this is my vacation photo that's a comment car set equals ASCII space new space exif space comment is a horrible example. Okay, so now I've just set it to this is my uh, vacation photo, but again, I had to know that it was exif dot photo dot user comment. Well, I guess that's technically easy enough. You just go look at the exif data specification to find out what all those tag names are. But I just, I find it puzzling that the output of a command would, would disguise the thing that you put in. I mean, I understand maybe not wanting to put too many dots in there because dots scare some people, but, but, okay, swap them out for spaces and then just say, okay, where you, there, there's a space, you put a dot when you're setting, uh, the, the thing, um, and that took me a long time to figure out that alone i mean like camera camera model isn't what you would think it would be like like you'd think well exif.camera.model i guess and then we could just say uh it's a canon maybe no that's an error um manipulate the exif metadata of images that's what this command does but that's an error invalid key exif camera well how do we list keys then well man exif 2 do a search for list. Short answer, that that won't give you, like, a magical list of all the, the possible EXIF keys. And that's because there isn't, like, one possible set of EXIF keys. There's camera manufacturers out there that implement vendor-specific tags and so on. So it's really a mess of uh, all the metadata possibilities of images, unfortunately. And... And it's, I think it's to the detriment of the user and uh, to the detriment of the tool, because uh, this tool is, you know, unintentionally frustrating. It's not, I don't think it's the tool's fault. I think it's just, there's a lot of metadata possibilities out there. And yes, you could write anything to the file, but then would anything be able to read that back to you in a useful way? You obviously don't want to encourage, or, or rather you don't, it's probably not realistic for you to want to just, write arbitrary data to an image file as metadata. That's That seems silly, so that's not what exif2 is primarily designed to do, although you can. There's a namespace uh, specifically for exiv, that's E-X-I-V as in victor, and you could write stuff to that uh, all day. But would that be useful? Maybe not. So the place I go to, ironically, uh, to get exif Metadata information is exiftool.org, which is a different command. It's it's available on slackbuilds.org. I find it much easier to use than exif2, and I I would I would recommend installing that exiftoolorg slash names slash exifhtml is the list of all the exif uh, tags. But it is it's messy. It's me- there's no getting around it. It is messy me- messy. There's just there's a lot of potential metadata out there, and it's it's a rather list of, of potential, well, keys and values, because, again, you want things with, like, firmware and stuff to be able to read that stuff back to you in a useful way. You want your camera to understand the metadata. You don't want to just throw it random values and Pretend like firmware that's very hard coded for exactly a specific set of metadata to um, to just roll with it. So that's exiv2. Two, two. I don't mean to give it. Um, I, I don't mean to rob it of any kind of meaningful attention. But I, I really I don't use it. I find Exif tool a lot more uh, user friendly. exiv2, however, has a whole library set so that if you are writing this data with your C++ program or something, well, you've got a library for that now, and that's that, that is quite useful. All right, last one in the E section, expat. It's a C library for parsing XML. Uh, not a whole lot more to say about that. XML is a great format, but parsing it is, it can be complex. Like if you're trying to do it manually, I don't know if you've ever tried to parse XML or even HTML in like a shell script or with grep, you know, or with awk. It's just horrible. I mean, just look up on like Stack Overflow, how to do that sort of thing. You can do it, it can be done, but, and you'd you, Think it would be easy? I mean, in theory, it is, right? You you find the 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 greater than, and then the less than, and the stuff in between those two should be the data. But there are all kinds of exceptions, and then there's the attributes within each element, and so on. So it, it can be very difficult. So expat making it easier for a C programmer to parse XML. Who's going to argue? Nobody. That's the E section. E is an echo. Done. On to F, as in foxtrot. Next week. Thanks for listening. Talk to you then. In the next few minutes, we expect to make world-shattering history.